This is an ABC podcast. You know, there's so many things that go on in my mind and in the world. Everything changes. It could be a, a Van Eyck painting or it could be a Don McCallum photograph of the Vietnam War. I'll never lose any imagination. I had no doubt that I was in the presence of an artist, uh, of course, but at the time when you're experiencing these things, you don't realise what longevity or what effect they might have. Alexander Lee McQueen said he wanted to bring the outside world into high fashion. A working-class kid who presided over a Paris couture house at age 26, he did it spectacularly, with pyrotechnics, stylized blood, spray-painting robots, and extreme silhouettes. But is there any doubt this visionary designer was in fact a contemporary artist? This is The Art Show. I'm Daniel Browning, coming to you from Arakwa country, where we say jingiwala, hello. A blockbuster exhibition about the fashion maverick McQueen is a chance for us to find out. From one of McQueen's closest associates, who he whisked away to Paris soon after she graduated from art school, and who shared a flat with him. And we'll meet the photographer who documented his shows for many, many years. Plus, art is in the atmosphere. It's all around us. I take a look at an exhibition with the weighty theme of air. That's all coming up here on The Art Show. A prodigious talent who was completely self-made. Fashion designer Alexander McQueen, known as Lee, was the very embodiment of late 90s Cool Britannia. He learned fashion the hard way, as a tailor's apprentice. And what he didn't learn there, he was taught in the School of Fashion Design at London's Central St Martins. McQueen was a showman thoroughly versed in the history of art, costume design, cinema and English colonial violence, in his ancestral homeland of Scotland. He was also haunted in his own life by the spectre of male violence. He literally armed the women who wore his clothes, which he designed to a soundtrack by Erica Badu and Lil' Kim. He was, by all accounts, a demanding impresario who was racked by self-doubt, tortured even by the business of fashion and his own demons. Lee McQueen died by suicide in 2010. And a warning, it's mentioned in our conversations. The big exhibition McQueen, Mind, Mythos, Muse at the National Gallery of Victoria is made up of garments and accessories from their collection and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, as well as artworks that point to his broad inspirations. Well, let's meet Catherine Brickhill. She worked closely with him at Givenchy, where he was the label's head designer. And I should mention that Catherine is over six foot in heels. She's incredibly glamorous and impeccably dressed. Today, she's wearing a denim patchwork dress, if I remember correctly. It's by who else? Alexander McQueen. And she's sporting a designer clutch purse. I studied um, at Central St. Martins. I did the MA in fashion. And I started, I guess, the year that Lee had left. Um, So I was two years his junior. Um, And I started working for him immediately after I left um, the MA course. He'd seen my collection um, my final show and he really liked it and he asked me to come and and meet with him and I ended up doing an internship for for him and then when he um, had the Givenchy contract he invited me to come back and to work for him so I was the first designer that he employed. So he was known as Lee to his nearest and dearest uh, but Alexander McQueen is the label, is is the artist. You're someone who's very close to him professionally I assume personally. What do you feel when you look around and see all these designs that must be quite familiar to you? Some of them are very familiar. Some of them I worked on. Uh, some of them I've only ever seen in, in video or in photos because I stopped working for him in 2001. There's part of it that's very emotive because uh, especially when you walk, first walk into the gallery and he's speaking on film, you know, it's... Um, it brings back a lot of memories and it see, he seems very present and he seems very present in all of the work. What was he like as a person? He was very, very funny, seemed very relaxed, seemed very self-confident, knew how to put people at ease. At the same time, you know, he no, wouldn't suffer fools. He could be very insecure at the same time. He could be very worried about, you know, the way that he looked or the way people were going to take his work. Um, you know, what his boyfriends thought about him. Uh, he, could, he was incredibly generous. He was 
kind. He could be very dark. I lived with him in Paris. We lived in the same apartment for <laughs> quite a long time. You know, we were, and the people who worked with him, certainly the period that I worked for him, we were his family, so we were very close. We would, you know, we, we would go out together, we would party together, we would, um, you know, go out on research trips. I flew all around the world with him to various places. We were very much, um, you know, kind of in each other's pockets. We knew everything about each other. And a lot of that made for a lot of good fun. There were also some darker moments, for sure. Any particular designs in this room? We're in a room called Dangerous Bodies. What I love about McQueen is that he took you know, the armature of fashion, historically, the bodice, you know, the stuff that was hidden, and externalised them. I mean, people talk about him empowering women with his designs. Do you feel that that's, that's what he was doing? I think, that's, I think that's very true. I think he was very aware of a silhouette, so if you were going to do big shoulders, then, you know, you would, that was going to mean probably a nipped-in waist. You know, there was a definitely sort of silhouette going on, whereas if it was going to be a big volume, it might mean, you know, a different silhouette. So I think the silhouette was really important. The idea of armour, yes, for sure. And when you wear McQueen clothes, it's almost like they're actually wearing you. <laughs> you know, you, if you walk into a room wearing McQueen, the clothes kind of come first, you know? and they define the way you're going to move. Um, you know, I don't think it's for nothing that there are high heels on pretty much all his silhouettes. It's, a, it's, a, it's an attitude, it's a way of walking, it's a, it's a statement. And I guess a thing about a corset or a bodice is that it, it does hold you up. Um, I also think that, you know, it's, a, it's what defines a woman's form. It's what makes, for me, dressing a woman exciting because you're dealing with curves and shapes um, and so that has a lot of challenges when you're trying to put something two-dimensional and turn it into something that's very three-dimensional but it's also anything that's tight to your waist is it makes you stand in a certain way behave, behave in a certain way and of course it has a certain connotation because it's it's a restraint it's supposed to stop you moving in a way so yeah there are lots of different uh, connotations I think that go with that idea of armour and, and I think that Lee was was very keen also to present women as being strong powerful I think yeah I think women are supposed to look a little threatening you know and I think it's a very interesting conversation to be having now when we are talking more about you know male violence against women and girls and I think that's something that the, Lee was always you know aware of it's funny that, in a way, women don't have more protective clothing, you know, in that respect. I mean, if you think about women who walk along the street with their keys threaded in between their fingers, and I'm looking at the Sarah Harmani headpiece with the blades coming over the ear, I mean, I think it's more defensive than being about a threat, perhaps, but um, I think it's, it's quite relevant today. And Lee had a real strong sense of that he wanted women to be empowered and to not, from his own personal life, the kind of violence that his, I think his sister and his mother had faced and of wanting to arm them, I think. So he had, a, I think, a sense of empathy. Mm. Some people think perhaps he hated women, you know. He was surrounded by women the whole time. He Maybe was, that was an idea put, or put about by his enemies. I just don't think people really understood. And when I was working for him, there sometimes I would propose things to him, which then those pieces which I designed would be brought up as examples of some sort of misogyny, but they were being designed by a woman. I mean, I was, I was doing it under his name. I'm thinking in particular some bodies that I did that were in leather that were a little bit S and M. And, but the idea behind them was also, it was coming from a position of strength. It was coming from a position of uh, empowerment. And I think that was the, where Lee always saw women. They were not vulnerable. And even when you see the pieces which are very uh, flu or, you know, they're very romantic or feminine or dress, you know, the sort of dre more dressy side, there's never really vulnerability. Are there any designs, Catherine, in this room that you can see your hand in? Well, the video, which is not on this precise moment, of The Jungle Show was the first show that I worked on with Lee. And that was almost immediately after I'd finished um, college. And my show had been, there was a lot of leather, there were very big shoulders, um, and it was 
a silhouette that was almost kind of 80s, but it was a very empowered sort of Amazon, Glamazon. So when I see those images, they remind me of working on that particular show. And this dress here, which is in, in leather with the tiger and the cutouts, I remember very clearly being in the studio, uh, working on that show. With Pouring over a dressmaker's table or with your, well, yeah, with your pins, pins in your hair and it was, measuring it was tape. completely crazy time. I mean, it's difficult to describe, but there would be a lot of interns who were there, um, like shaving skins, there'd be fur flying, um, you know, people coming in and out with that for that show, horns and crocodile heads, and there would also be film crews at the same time. So it was like an absolute crazy hive of activity, and everyone's sitting around this big table. You know, some people would be beading, some people would be cutting or sewing, and, and we, you could sit, I did, sit at a sewing machine for 24 hours, you know, before a show, just smoking, sewing, uh, you had to get the stuff done. So, you know, the, the, those pieces. So glamorous. It, it was not glamorous. We would have nothing to eat. You know, the, the guy who produced McQueen in Italy, he would come the night before the show with a big plateau of sushi. We'd still be eating it in the morning mm. <laughs> because we'd have to stay up all night. Not exactly fresh, my stage. <laughs> What's your fondest memory of Lee? Fondest memory? I've, there, there are so many. And for me, you know... There are also some you know, darker memories, but I think just you know his sense of humor. When I first started working for him, I would take my dog to the studio, and he had a dog, well, he had several dogs, but at that point he had Minta, who was a sort of Staffordshire cross. Our dogs would like frolic, and they were doing more than frolicking, which he thought was very funny. Lee would have this like cackle that you would hear from miles away. And somehow his dog, Minta, had perfected this sort of complete mimic of, of Lee's laugh. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. So I think you know, my fondest memories are about some of the good times that we had and just fooling around, laughing. Um, you know, it's a hard, it is a tough industry. People think it's very glamorous. A lot of the time it isn't at all. Um, I've been very lucky to work with people who, you know, are fun, see the positive side, you know, the light. Um, not everyone's like that in fashion, for sure. So fondest memories, I think, are, are the good times, the laughing, the fun. When he passed away, he appeared to be at the peak of his career. Were you shocked? I mean, the world was. Was I shocked? Um, I was, of course, shocked. I hadn't, you know, seen him for quite a while. I was, um, at the same time, he did spend a lot of time talking about how he was going to maintain his level of fame and success. I think he was very aware of how that could take a turn at any point, and he didn't want to have to deal with that, I think. Um, I do think it's an, an enormous loss because he was so far ahead of his time in many ways, and just the, you know, the enormity of his talent um, it's just such a shame that he's not here to carry on seeing that through. When you look at, you know, it, maybe he wouldn't still be working in fashion. A lot of designers have enough at some point, but he could have gone and moved more into films or he could have done um, something else. So I, I think um, yeah, I think it's a, you know, it's a terrible loss for and a terrible waste of talent, you know. Catherine Brickhill, who worked closely and lived with Alexander, otherwise known as Lee McQueen, until they parted ways in 2001. McQueen is the second designer to be fated by the National Gallery of Victoria this year after Coco Chanel. I'm with the curator of fashion and textiles. Yes, at the NGV, they have one. My name's uh, Danny Whitfield and I'm the curator of fashion and textiles at the National Gallery of Victoria in Melbourne. We're in the final room of the McQueen exhibition at the NGV, which looks at the collection Plato's Atlantis. What was McQueen's premise, I guess, with this collection? I guess this collection is really a rumination on climate change and rising sea levels. And with this collection, McQueen envisaged uh, a narrative which was like a science fiction scenario where humanity has to adapt in order to survive and so therefore returns to the sea. And we can see that in the designs. I mean, there's examples of the armadillo shoes, um, 
uh, remade for the for, not for the for the exhibition. These aren't Alexander's armadillo shoes, but the designs. Tell me about them. There's one that you know this kind of Aquarian amphibian uh, creature. Tell me about this particular one here, the, the, the leggings. I guess this collection is really known for its extraordinary digital prints and the digital prints used in this collection really chart the transformation from land to sea. So the first looks to come out on the runway were reptilian, there were moths, there were snakes and then we segue into these incredible watery blues and so the work we're looking at here has a, a leather bodice which evokes the skin of a stingray in its texture and colour and the leggings have these great sort of highly uh, high-key coloured sort of um, amorphous forms like floating jellyfish. Now this room there's a there's what looks like a, a you know a runway several mannequins wearing his designs very 30s but the backdrop is a you know the runway show from this collection uh, around 2004 I think it was but it's a film. It's a film that he drew inspiration from, a Jane Fonda film? Throughout his career, McQueen was really interested in Hollywood film. We see him referencing well-known works like Hitchcock's The Birds, um, The Shining, The Abyss. But in 2004, for his spring-summer collection, he uh, drew on the work uh, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Um, by Sidney Pollack from 1969. And... That film tells the story of a Depression-era dance marathon, and it's quite, a, it's quite a grim tale. And for the runway performance, uh, McQueen worked with Scottish choreographer Michael Clarke to um, present a version of a dance marathon on the stage. And so what you see here with the, the mannequins from left to right are those different chapters of the runway presentation, which begin with the models glamorously dressed in these beautiful flowing um, silk chiffon and, and silk satin gowns. Then we move to the section in the, in the middle of the presentation where they're literally on the racetrack competing in these like lycra tightly fitted um, garments. And then obviously the works at the end which really evoke the kind of the fatigue and the exhaustion and you know for McQueen this collection was a bit of a metaphor on the nature of fashion itself um, but yeah it was an extraordinary presentation and one for which you know he's very well known. And I think there's a photograph of a model being carried off by McQueen uh, from this exhausting experience she's just endured uh, on the catwalk. I mean he's famous for kind of you know, I guess putting models through their paces and really working them. Uh, there was no kind of, you, you, in a McQueen show, you were full, you're, you're 24 seven. Yeah, I guess for McQueen, the presentation of the collection was as critical to his vision as the production of the collection itself. And so we have extraordinary moments where models, you know, are surrounded by rings of fire, where they walk through water, where there's snow and ice. And so, and whether, yeah, when, and then they're dancing till they drop. But it really was about, I guess, communicating the idea at the heart of the show. And for you, I mean, you're the curator of textiles and fashion here at the National Gallery of Victoria. Obviously, the NGV believes that fashion is a form of art. But what do you think the, the, the strongest claim that you can make about McQueen as an artist, as, as, as a contemporary, someone who was concerned with the world, someone who really considered world from an aesthetic um, and kind of philosophical kind of perspective? I mean, it's interesting because McQueen said fashion is just... The medium and I think if you reflect on his work he was a true visionary and he was conceptually groundbreaking in the way that he used fashion to talk about big issues, um, universal themes but also you know his work was it was so masterful in the way that it was made and the way that he took all of those foundations like tailoring, dressmaking, all the knowledge of that and deconstructed it and remade it according to his own aesthetic language. 
Fisk Collection, The Widows of Culloden from 2006 is such a highlight within the context of the show because we have 12 garments from the collection. So you really get to see in depth what McQueen was talking about um, through his use of, you know, the palette, the silhouettes, um, but also because these works are years of collecting for the NGV to build up our holdings um, because it's a collection that was very close to McQueen's heart. It told the story of British colonial violence in Scotland at the end of the 18th century. And so here he's looking to his own Scottish ancestry and imagining the widows after the battles. So with the 12 works in this room, you see references in the palette to the colour of the Scottish moors, to traditions of Scottish gamekeeping. You have five works in the McQueen tartan representing the Highlanders whose lives were destroyed. Um, we have references to sort of military braid to the battle itself. And then we have this incredible grand ball gown, which was one of the finale pieces on the runway, which is just a thing of great beauty. It also <laughs> harks back to the Highland Rape, which yeah. Highland Rape, the, one of his most kind of controversial uh, collections. It's so true. And I think in 1995, um, McQueen presented Highland Rape, and it was a very provocative, aggressive representation of that particular history of the Jacobite uprisings and um, British violence and what we see 10 years later is McQueen revisiting that theme but with greater refinement and at this point in his career he has had the benefit of working at Givenchy and learning from the Italias and the skills and you know the fabrics that you see in this collection the dressmaking techniques, the embellishments, they all have a much more kind of poetic evocation of, of that narrative. I mean, I was 26 when I went to Paris and, uh, and I'd only been out of college like two years and I know I was the head of uh, French couture house. Robert Ferrer was in the orbit of Alexander Lee McQueen, photographing his shows, not from the runway, but backstage, a world he discovered by accident. My name's Robert Farah. I'm a photographer, and I was very privileged over 16 years to photograph 30 out of McQueen's 36 fashion shows. All in London? No, London and Paris, and in fact one of them, uh, maybe two, went to New York. At a fashion show, it's probably a designer's most pressurized moment. He's been working on a collection for six months. It's a no. So you don't exactly go up and say, hey, Lee, it's Robert here. No, you, you observe quietly from, from uh, you know, a discreet distance. We know him as Alexander McQueen, but of course was known to his nearest and dearest as Lee. What was your job, I suppose? I mean, to document for posterity or to document for, were you working for Vogue? No, in the early days I was working for myself. I was asked by a magazine to, to cover uh, Alexander McQueen's first proper catwalk show at the Bluebird Garage in London. And I went along and from that moment I was hooked. Um, yeah, I didn't know what to expect and I was blown away. I mean, it was, it was a visceral moment. It was unexpected. It was raw. It was, it was London, you know, at its edge. Uh, that was the first show. Gosh, the first few years, magazines weren't particularly interested in his work, to be honest with you. I mean, I was selling my images on an image-by-image -image basis. And it was, it was very hard to, to shift them uh, from about... 98 onwards, yes, then it, it really took off and, uh, and I was asked to cover the shows. What was my job? My job was to document the fashion. Yeah, you captured what was going on behind the scenes, which was, I think, fairly unusual, wasn't it? I mean, for, the, for these to be kind of a permanent record of, of a show, what happened behind, scene, behind the scenes wasn't 
really something that was published, widely published. No, in the beginning, people didn't understand what I was doing or why I was there. I discovered backstage by accident once when a photographer came down the catwalk with a cup of coffee and I said, where'd you get that? And he said, backstage. And I said, where's that? And he said, over there. And I went in and just walked into this world. I mean, I was covering probably 100 shows a, a season in the beginning. Uh, McQueen obviously was just one of those. And, um, and when I discovered uh, the, the, the backstage arena, that was it for me. It was a, a new world. It was something that needed to be documented. But I didn't want to photograph girls smoking, hanging around, drinking cups of coffee. I was interested in the, in the clothes. And for me, this was a great way of, of, of capturing the clothes. On the catwalk, you're simply photographing what comes towards you. It's lit beautifully. Backstage, you actually get to create something. You have an interaction with the girls, with the clothes. And you can actually make something different. This is one of those rare photographs where they actually perhaps are smoking and have, have some drinks and they're just chilling out before the show but I walked into this scene and they have prosthetics on their face, they look like aliens and so I forgave myself for taking this picture because it's such an unreal unreal moment and they have long fingernails, they look like claws, they seem to be sort of silver fingernails and these are uh, sort of alien beings, this is a show called Plato's Atlantis which was in fact McQueen's last show so, uh, so I, I did have to take, as a rare exception, this image. Did you have any doubt that you were kind of in the presence of, 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 of an artist? I had no doubt that I was in the presence of an artist, uh, of course. But at the time when you're experiencing these things, you don't realise what longevity or what effect they might have on the future of fashion or the future of, of anything artistic. Um, you know, you're experiencing this moment at the time and you don't know what the relevance is going to be in the future. And to see your work in this context, part of this evocation of the memory of Alexander McQueen, how does that feel? Well, it's an, a huge honour to be part of the exhibition uh, and to have the opportunity to blow the images up so large and, and uh, place them on a wall and have, you know, maybe a quarter of a million people look at them is, is very heartwarming to me. When I took these images, I had no idea, you know, for me, they were going to go into a magazine. They were going to be used almost as fashion news images in, in the pages of Vogue. But, uh, you know, 20 years on to, uh, to see them being appreciated by people is, as I said, a huge honor. Were you there for Highland Rape? I was there for Highland Rape. Uh, I didn't shoot it backstage. I was actually on the runway at that point. And that was a very interesting show, just to see people's reactions as they walked out. I mean, the journalists were mixed between disgusted, uh, shocked. Uh, I, I think some journalists probably walk, walked out during the show as well. Um, a misinterpretation, perhaps, of the message that was being put across. Because that moment created him, he created the, the myth, the mythos, and the legend of Alexander McQueen, he had, to, he had to reveal himself in a moment. And he chose that kind of, what was in him, his DNA was, his sense of, you know, what had happened to Scotland. And he carried that with him. And he wanted to show it to London. Absolutely. But I think this is a theme that goes through all of his collections. What you see in his shows is the man himself. I think that's a quote that, uh, that he gave from violence that was shown perhaps towards his sister, uh, towards Scotland, uh, towards himself. I think it is, you know, an autobiographical journey in a way. Do you think he was um, interested at all in, in becoming part of an establishment? Do you think there was something in him that wanted to be part of the thing that, that, had, that had defined him by opposition? That's a very interesting question. <laughs> I don't think he really probably wanted to be part of anything. I think he had his own mission, he had his own vision. It was very singular and he wasn't shy in expressing it. I'm sorry that he's not around today to uh, have shown us where he could have taken it. I can only say what I saw at his shows. That intensity was, was profound. Obviously there was his relationship with Isabella Blow as well, who sadly committed suicide a few years before. Uh, and then his, his muse. His muse, exactly. Muse and perhaps the person that helped to launch him. I was very, very saddened, very shocked. And um, I think it, it was a great loss to fashion. And, you know, perhaps, as I said, going forward, he would have taken things much further, not necessarily in the world of fashion, but perhaps in activism or politics. Um, yeah, it would have been 
very interesting to see where he went after fashion. I have to say that, you know, with his shows, I never knew what to expect. I just knew it was going to be a roller coaster ride. It was going to be better than the next. It was going to be a, a shock, a surprise, a delight. Um, to say that I got him, I'm not sure. I think I was slightly intimidated in a way when I was shooting his shows. It's, it wasn't a hostile environment, but it was an environment I wasn't used to. It was very raw, very visceral, frenetic as well, absolutely. Um, and so I was tiptoeing around doing what I did. I don't envy you tiptoeing around backstage at an Alexander McQueen show. So I think really it's only with retrospect. Uh, these images have been on contact sheets for the last 20 years. I came back from the shows. I would have shot 100 shows. So I wouldn't even be looking at the film. It would be shipped off to the magazine and I'd be off doing other, other, other work, other shoots. But... When I eventually, we did a book on this uh, in 2015 after the Savage Beauty show at the BNA, we plucked up the courage to do a book because, of course, it's, it was quite a, uh, an intense environment, the whole McQueen environment, and we really didn't want to offend anybody by publishing a book. But after the Savage Beauty show, we felt that yes, we, we had something to offer, something to share, and we wanted to share it. So it's only in, in doing the research for that book and diving back into the images 15 years later, 10 years later, that we actually really began to understand the legacy that he's left behind. What did you love about photographing McQueen? It was the unexpected, and it was the beauty of the dresses and the construction of the dresses. And, I mean, looking in front of us, we see this picture from Widows of Culloden with a, uh, a headpiece by Philip Tracy. I mean, it's, it's the feathers of a bird, the wings of a bird into a, into a girl's I have a tweed, tweed, you know, the tweed inspiration, I think, the tweed coat. Exactly. And, I mean, where are you going to see this? I mean, Isabella Blow would have worn this. The clothing itself is, is, is gorgeous, but the whole ensemble becomes this performance piece and I think that's it about McQueen there was there was a huge performance element the clothing you know when you walked in you saw it on the rails it had its own personality each dress had a personality you know you walk into Valentino Chanel anywhere it's you know you see these beautiful gowns but you walk into McQueen and these gowns have a life of their own which pervades into the model she becomes the personality as she walks out onto the catwalk um you know, there's, there's not a lot of space for individuality. <laughs> More like actors in a drama that he's directing and, and or, he's orchestrating, he's a conductor. And these, people, these models are just pieces that he can move, move around. The instruments in this kind of big drama that he's, he's created. Exactly. A mise-en-scene, you know, he's like, he's like a film director. You're absolutely right, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, they're momentous occasions. Photographer Robert Ferrer. We also heard from National Gallery of Victoria curator Danny Whitfield and before her, Catherine Brickhill. Alexander McQueen, Mind, Mythos, Muse is on at the National Gallery of Victoria until April next year. Now, if any of the conversations I've had today have raised issues for you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Now, what's invisible but key to life on this planet? It's something we all share clue, it's more precious and life-giving than water. I'm talking about air. Oxygen or the carbon dioxide we exhale or any of the gases or microbes or contaminants that might be present in the atmosphere, like microscopic airborne viruses. Air, of course, can be seen, but not for itself. The artists curated into an exhibition called Air at the Gallery of Modern Art in Brisbane in one way or another, make the stuff around us somehow visible. Whether it's photographs of the 2019 bushfires that transformed the skies of southeastern Australia, or in a swarm of paper-cut butterflies. Curator Geraldine Barlow has a knack of finding the relationship between disparate artists and art forms. That's precisely what she's done with this exhibition, which follows one simply called Water in 2019. Air, I hope, is about what we share and a critical challenge we face and I've tried to frame it as I've heard from scientists and uh, that this decade and I think it's a political scientific question we're taking energy from art but we're trying to offer something to our collective community and so I hope that this exhibition can say like um, 
if air and rising temperatures are the measure of the challenge, how will we address this? How will we reinvent and re-engineer this shared society? It's definitely a shared resource, a life-giving resource. We're in this room. I mean, the question is, and this is a question I've, I've kind of had to confront in writing for the catalogue, was how do you how do you quantify something which has no material form? Well, we made water in a time of drought, and water is like this subject that slips through your fingers. But um, also, I think we really associate strongly with life. And as we were making water, I was starting to think about air as a subject, and then water closed, I mean water opened at a time of fire, it opened at a time of drought but also at a time when um, you know here in Brisbane and across Queensland landscapes were burning that had never burnt before and then along the eastern coast of Australia and um, It was that weekend I remember, I was here for, for water and uh, I literally flew out of Sydney and there was it was just like something out of apo- apocalyptic, really. Yeah. I think one of the elements of this exhibition, we're also um, in the chapter Burn, we're looking at um, there's an anchor work, which is a ventilation system and this sense of networks, the networks that connect us and convey air and energy and, um, you know, what... How do we rely upon these? But what what happens when these fail? Or, um, you know, we're seeing terribly in Ukraine at the moment when um, these systems are targeted and um, the infrastructure that supports us could also potentially be a point of uh, vulnerability. Um, there's some tough subjects in this show. It's aimed at a really broad audience to welcome people. But even in that toughest moment within Bern, we have a beautiful work by the Swiss artist Fischli and Weiss um, called The Way Things Go. And it's almost like this domino chain of like, um, what if the coffee cup rolls down and uh, the fire lights and it's um, one thing activates another. And I felt like when we're, I want us to think about climate change, but also that um, to step away from the accusatory politics, which can be relevant at times, but to think, I think that it's best for us to focus our energy on invention and transformation. And that work is really beautiful because I think we actually can't always see the path ahead when we create something. We just need to face the challenge that's clear to us at the time. We're looking at the work of Rachel Mounsey, and this is large-scale photographs shot from the coast, uh, looking back into Malakuta. So the the colour is uh, like a dying ember, like a, a hot red, but kind of fading. So I just get this sense of the crisis has, has passed. There's a Ron Muick here, a very famous Ron Muick of a lady in a bed who looks at Ioanni Skars's, um cloud, one of her cloud works, the, the shape of a dissipating cloud from a nuclear explosion in the South Australian desert, and then a work called Plume. So we're, we're literally on firing in this room. It's, it's yeah. I'm, I'm so thrilled to have Rachel's work in the exhibition. And, um, you know, this exhibition, we have artists like Thomas Saraceno, who's very well known, Tacita Dean. And, um, you know, Rachel's both an artist and a photojournalist. And I think she was there with her um, equipment and her many lenses as these fires occurred in her um, local community and many of us would have seen her photographs um, you know I think on the Guardian and they would have been distributed um, globally but when you look at them together collectively certain images have a kind of um, cut through to communicate a majestic horrifying moment Um, but I we wanted to kind of bridge between those moments and also these kind of tender, curious moments. Um, you know, one of my favourite works we're looking at here, there are three... There's hope. Yeah, there's hope and there's... I think we find ourselves in this surprising moment, like it's like there are kids on their summer holidays. The sky has darkened mid-morning. The way that you see it in her work, it's almost like um, thick and orangey amber, as you described it. My name is Rachel Mounsey. I'm a photographer and I live in Malakuta. 
now, Rachel, this work, I have to say, is for me an unexpected joy, um, not just because of what it depicts, but what, what are we looking at here, this, 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 this work of yours? This very first one, we're looking at um, a, young, a young boy with his dog playing in the sea. It's probably three weeks or two weeks after the, after the initial fires, and so we kept having... Um, we, we, li- we were living under a cloud of smoke and ash for for a month or more in, in Malakuta and probably the east coast, I'd say. This particular instant, I'd gone down the beach and the smoke was coming over from Cape Conran and it was like we were, we'd just become used to living underneath these, these um, smoke clouds and so the, the image to me is quite pedestrian. It's just a kid playing in, in the water and what isn't just a normal thing. But what I started to think about, and I guess I did think about from the beginning of the fires, was that we'll just get used to this. The daily horror. Yeah, this is just, as the world is heating up, we're going to get used to this, you know? And so these, um, I looked for moments where they were quite pedestrian and I just thought, well, here's a little kid on holiday just playing with his, playing with his dog, although this kid is a local kid, but um, yeah, he's just at Bastion Point playing with his dog. But also what I did do in this photograph, which I really like, is that I'd gotten down to the beach and I had my usual, you know, press lenses, uh, the usual wide angles, but I actually saw this going on and I swapped over really quickly for my tilt shift lens just to make it a little bit more dreamy and surreal. So, and I didn't know what it really looked like because like, you can't really see with that, that way of focusing. And then when I saw it, when I got, it on, got home and had a look at it, I was like, oh, that image, I really... It really struck me, and it's really great to see it this big as well. Yeah. Now I want to ask you. This is um, printed on onto fibre rag. Mm-hmm. It's it's paper essentially. Mm-hmm. How on earth did you make it radiate heat and emanate light? I'd say that that's in my in my shooting more than anything. I'd say that's because when I when I was shooting these, I was a little bit underexposed and and put a little bit more contrast into them and the idea for me was the glow of the, of the orange and so you had to go a little bit under to make the orange come out otherwise you're going to overexpose and it's not going to yeah it looks a little bit washed out so I was really looking at those orange skies and how they were affecting us and everybody and everybody living underneath them so it's, it's been an interesting place for the last couple of years actually like documenting and looking at how the bush and people recover after all this so yeah and I wasn't imagining that this would actually that I'd be the one photographing our own our own disaster but there I was you know I'm about to go back and think about well it's nearly three years now so where are we now and where are the people now but I've actually not wanted to stand on toes and be in people's in people's um, faces too much so and also that you deal with it yourself, you know, that you actually go through it. Not, I mean, I'm fine. It's collective trauma. Yeah, it is collective trauma and, and I'm fine. I think I'm fine. But, you know, it, it has taken a couple of years of, wow, what, what just happened? And, and, and even some of these images here, I remember, you know, the first few days when, when the fires were on top of us, it was okay, but then there was um, a little bit of a break. And I was with... Um, another photographer from the age and he said oh do you know Rach that in in a few days three days we're going to have orange skies again and I said oh no 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 I don't I don't want to I don't want to see that again and I was really I said no 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 I don't want to go back to that and you know I had to kind of gather myself and and I said no I can do it I can do it but so you know I I think that I'm not affected but I probably was a little bit affected like it's taken a little bit of oh yeah this was a bit wild and Mm. You're connected to these events intimately, mm. and yeah. this one I also love is a. This one has has a sense of hope. I mean, they all do, and what you've managed to capture is there's these kids on rafts here. Yeah, so they're on their rafts. What are they doing? They're catching ashes. So this was five days or something, and this is the orange sky that I was talking about before. And and these kids had come on holidays. They come every year. They were it was down on the on the lake and. This orange sky was coming. It was like we were used to it by then. You know, the whole coast had been on fire for a, a while now. And so the kids, it's really silent. And they were just, and actually what is great about this is to me, or, or what was going on was that it was really quiet. It was silent. And they were just there and there was little ashes. I found it so poetic, these little ashes falling from the sky, you know, and the girl's got her, her um, paddle out and she's actually collecting the ashes. And... I just found that such a poetic, quiet and dark moment. 
You know, you've never exhibited in a fine art context before. I mean, you're a photojournalist, you know. Regional girl. Regional girl. Regional girl. Okay. Never, yeah, no, it's never been so big for me, really. <laughs> That's what I love about it, though. These are really important documents, mm. but they're artworks. Well, for me, it's, it was quite overwhelming to walk in yesterday and think, oh, gee whiz, I'm in this this particular room but I think that it, it, I think that the curation is fantastic and it it does speak to me being being in this room with this with the um, plume cl- yeah with Jemima Jemima's work and 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 you know the the woman in bed over here Ron Muick like sitting back and she's she's overcome she's either she's either immobilized paralyzed by what she can't do the, the scale of a, of of the crisis yeah. she's just basically it's on we it's that when you, you you can't do anything and it's almost like someone mentioned to me yesterday people watched the east coast burning from the television you know and they were like oh, i turned on the tv and someone actually mentioned to me yesterday isn't it like how i was i was i was wherever they were and they said i turned on the tv and the whole of the east coast was on fire and I, we watched it all and i thought yeah it's it, it is like that Photographer Rachel Mounsey, and the air was very much visible on those horrific few days. The radiant heat lit up the skies. I'm at Quagoma in Brisbane for Air, an exhibition that brings together artists like Patrick Pound, Dale Harding and Tacita Dean, with works from the collection by Max Dupain and Albert Namajira and Ron Muick. Another artist in the show creates living sculptures, terrariums writ large, ecosystems where real plants crawl and sometimes cascade, out of quite monumental concrete forms. His work for air is two hollow grey concrete columns, which is designed to support a host of plants, which of course breathe the air like food, recycling carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and cleaning it up and releasing it back as oxygen. It's something that fascinates artist Jamie North. They're all plants that are local to Brisbane, uh, all local species, and most of them are epiphytic, so they are are lithophytic in this case, plants that grow on rock. Um, So they're they're growing on the vertical surface. Um, And then there are some base plantings that are uh, local uh, fern species. At the top of the column uh, is uh, Ficus rubiginosa, which is Port Jackson fig that grows um, along the east coast of Australia. And yeah, I've been working with this species for, yeah, since I began uh, making this type of work. So really, I always think about the relationship between the, well, uh, the, the, the cast columns, the, the concrete and the, the slag and the coal ash, just reminds me of man, uh, the Anthropocene, the man-made impact on the environment. And then I think of the, the, the kind of natural beauty of plants. But the concrete and the plants have always struck me as working, I don't know, it's like a, it's like a habitat you've created for them. Yeah, I, I see it more as a, a synthesis rather than a dichotomy. Um, you know, the cast concrete, of course, is a, a human form. It's part of human culture, which I see as being part of nature rather than opposed to nature. And I think that's something that uh, we have to embrace. Concrete itself is really a recomposition of um, natural materials. So, um, yeah, of course, aesthetically, there is the, um, you know, the, the grey of the concrete kind of um, makes the plants pop against it but yeah conceptually I I do see it as more of a a continuum. People use the word decay or I've seen you know people write about your work or or read people when they write about you but you kind of uh, eschew you don't really get into or you're reluctant to say what the work is about. A a erosive process that allows for the growth of plants and um, just as um, in the landscape, erosion allows for um, plants to, um, to occupy that, that space. It's the same with uh, human-made structures. I don't know why, but this, the, the work puts me in mind of that film Three Monkeys. There's, there's, there's an atmosphere of menace, I get, or a feeling of like this is the world after some, some kind of cataclysm and the only things left are the other plants. I know you're reluctant to talk to talking this. Well, that allows, does allow for the occupation of plants, doesn't it? Like, and I think a change in our um, systems could open up possibilities around, um, you know, a more, um, more of an equilibrium. 
What's so fascinating about plants? I've always had a gravitation to it. I mean, I guess um, being a kid who was a little bit different, you know, um, I was attracted to... uh, the non-human um, Me too. in my environment. <laughs> um, you know, they felt a bit safer, I guess. That uh, appreciation of plants was fostered by my mother and um, it's just continued to, um, you know... To, to be, grow, literally. To grow. And, you know, um, it was always something in the background and I've always kind of played with plants in, uh, I guess, unconventional kind of ways. But when I first started making this kind of sculptural work, it you know, it really came to the fore and it allowed me to spend more time in that headspace where before it was always just uh, a peripheral thing that was just mine alone. But now it's something that I can share. You know, the terrarium is an example of a, of a, of a small-scale miniature world that mm. we can, you can build, yes. you know, you can create and, and see how plants mm-hmm. respond. And, but here, I mean, are you concerned for the welfare of the plants? I mean, how, how involved do you become in the, their lives? I'm, I'm looking over your shoulder now, just <laughs> examining. I did notice you checking the state of yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm very concerned about it. I want um, the plants in my sculptures to, um, you know, they're, they're not just, it's not just artifice. I want them to actually um, habit, survive the process, survive the process and, and continue to thrive. So all of my sculptures are imagined as um, systems for um, sustaining um, plant growth. Um, so, yeah, of course, I, I want them to, to thrive, um, not just for the duration of the, the exhibition, but beyond that as well. You must have a kind of sense of, like, when you, when you sell work of this scale yes. to, to an institution, uh, they have a responsibility to, to kind of keep it as you would want it to be kept. You have moral rights yeah. over it. Um, keeping them alive is yes. what I'm thinking about. I mean, the, the greatest um, secret to keeping a work alive is just providing it with light and water. Do you know, it's, um, it's just the fundamentals of maintaining any uh, living organism. Um, but, yeah, when the work's conceived, there is um, always contingencies for how that work might um, um, exist beyond the exhibition period. Um, so in this case, um, whilst the works are establishing, they would need to be irrigated um, and, uh, you know, as a supplement to, to rainwater and the vagaries of uh, the environment. So, yeah, water is the, is, is, is the key. <laughs> you create these environments. That's how you kind of deal yeah. with your green thumb. I mean, yeah, exactly. I, I love gardening, but... Um, you know, since I moved to Sydney when I was 24, I've always been constrained uh, in, in my, the spaces in which I have to grow, typically rentals and, uh, or apartment living. So I feel like um, that uh, restraint and, and that uh, pushing down of the desire to, to plant in the ground um, has um, spawned um, the the kind of practice that I have, and now have gardens all around Australia, and and they're popping up internationally now as well. So yeah, it's funny you push something down, and uh, it, it it comes up eventually. It's <laughs> another way to yes. be articulated. Yes. I love your work, Jamie, and uh, I, I, I love its its quiet beauty and what it makes me think. But the aesthetics of it is just, it's it's a beautiful thing, really. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you. Sydney-based artist Jamie North. And Air is on at Quagoma, the Queensland Art Gallery and Gallery of Modern Art, until the 23rd of April. That's it for this episode of The Art Show. Next week, join me for a best-of summer edition, where we feature our favourite interviews, studio visits and My Thing segments of the year. The Art Show is produced by Rosa Allen, thanks to sound engineer Matthew Crawford. Don't forget to follow us on the ABC Listen app. I'm Daniel Browning, very much looking forward to your company next time here on The Art Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.